Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you guys. If you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning as we continue our series on theophanies throughout the Bible. Uh, I haven't been in the main service in a while, so as you guys turn there, let me introduce myself. My name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here, and it's a joy to be with you guys this summer. Uh, Typically in the fall and spring, typically I'm over in the fellowship wing with our college students in our service there, and so it's a joy to get to pop in here with you guys uh, this summer. Uh, But we're going to be in Daniel 3. As you're turning there, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Daniel 3, picking it up in verse 1. We find this. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, and the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Daniel 3 is a very familiar story. This is the story that we remember in Sunday school for those of us who grew up, a story that's very familiar to us. We know how it often unfolds. But as we jump into Daniel 3 this morning, let me set it up for you and kind of give you a little sense more about myself. I grew up uh, in Dallas, Texas at a private Catholic all-guy high school, all right? It probably explains some of my social issues in college, all right? But that's not the point of this morning. Um, but I was there, and I, one of the people I remember most as I look back on my high school experience was the world history professor I had my senior year in high school. In fact, most of my junior year, we would hear stories about this professor leading up to our senior year. And each story had enough detail to make you incredibly fearful of what was coming, but not enough detail to really rein in the extent to which your fear could run. And there's all kinds of speculation as to who this guy was in terms of what his class was going to be like, in terms of what we'd experience. But as I finally arrived in his classroom, I began to realize quickly that he ran his classroom like a military barracks, all right? In fact, he was reserve military, all right? He showed up every day to school in combat boots. Uh, He had a shaved head and a mustache that really made him resemble an aged Adolf Hitler, and he ruled in that fashion, all right? It was insane. Uh, Actually, uh, he had a set of rules that he made very clear at the very beginning of the semester, but the punishment for breaking the rules, he spoke nothing of. So you had no idea what was going to happen when his precious rules were broken to about a month into our fall semester. A poor kid who had clearly heard the professor talk about the fact that you were supposed to respectfully listen to his lecture and never fall asleep because falling asleep was the unforgivable sin. Well, this poor chap a month into school, began to head bob, all right? The kind of head bobbing you get with whiplash that ensues before he quickly just collapses on the desk and he's out cold, all right? We, his fellow students, had two choices, either let him sleep and just see what happens or wake him up and intervene. Of course, we just chose to let him sleep. We were so deathly curious what was going to happen, all right? And so I think our professor had eyes in the back of his head as he was lecturing at the board and he instantly knew that someone had fallen asleep. And so his voice begins to trail off and begins to fade out before all of a sudden it's just complete silence in a classroom. 
He turns and begins to walk down the aisle and he comes and stands right over the student. Again, silence for like five minutes. Uh, It was so intense, you could hear a pin drop, you could hear saliva dry up. I mean, it was just crazy. And all of a sudden, he takes his red felt-tip marker that he was using to lecture, and he takes that red felt-tip marker, and he draws a line on the kid's neck, all right? The kid instinctually wakes up, presses his neck, and looks down, and he sees red all over his hands. And he looks up, startled to our professor, who's now standing over him, not holding a red felt-tip marker, but holding a giant serrated pocket knife, all right? (laughs) Now, some things just unfolded in an all-guy high school that would never flow in public school, right? I I think CPS should have been called. I mean, something was deathly afraid uh, and going on in this classroom. Kids had childhood scars that would never be healed. Things were just wrong, all right? I I quickly realized that in that world history professor's class senior year, he was an irrational and incredibly imposing authority over all of us. And really, no one was going to question his will. The only option you had in his classroom was conformity to his will. No one slept the rest of the semester in his class, right? Now, I think for many of us, we necessarily didn't have professors like that, all right? And you definitely don't have professors now. But I'd submit to you that every single one of us probably has some kind of authority in our life right now that we would probably, if we're honest... Describe as imposing and irrational. <laughs> uh, now, they maybe don't ask you to stay awake in class, and that's not a big deal. But whether it's in your family arena, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your classroom, or whether it's within an, or- an organization in our community, every single one of us runs across some authorities in our life that are frankly imposing and irrational. And it's one thing when they ask us to do things that are not necessarily morally compromising, but what happens when they ask you and I to compromise our morality or to compromise our faith? What do we do then? Well, that's the question I want to pose in front of you. That's going to be the question that's going to be posed in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king we're going to see in Daniel 3, was everything like my world history professor. God bless his soul. Irrational, imposing, and incredibly intimidating. Who, and you would never question his will. Conformity was the only option you had. But what we're going to see is a group of men, a group of Jews in the nation of Israel who are going to respond to that king in Daniel 3. And as we jump into this passage this morning, I want you to kind of think through the, the authorities that exist in your life and wrestle with what are the scenarios, what are the situations that you find yourself in where at times maybe, just maybe, they're pushing you to compromise your morality, they're pushing you to compromise your faith. What do you do? Or maybe you just find it difficult being under them. (laughs) Maybe it's not necessarily anything morally compromising, but maybe it's just really difficult to be under them. How do you navigate underneath those kinds of authorities? That's the question I want to pose this morning. I think Daniel 3 is going to give us six basic principles to navigating a life underneath those kinds of authorities. Uh, Six basic principles. And as we kind of jump into Daniel 3, I'll tell you as it opens that Daniel 3 is very much like any good 30-minute sitcom, all right, that you're used to on TV. In the first few verses, the first few minutes, you're going to see an introductory problem. That problem will grow in its tension and its implications until you hit a climax. At that climax, you'll have a momentous, dramatic intervention, in which case you'll come down the other side of that curve into a nice, peaceful resolution in which you see a complete reversal of the problem we saw to begin with, all right? That's going to be Daniel 3. Problem, tension rising, climax, and then resolution. That's where we're going to go, Daniel 3 this morning. Daniel 3, beginning in verse 1. Uh, The problem that poses as we jump into this is going to be a problem about 
uh, power. It's going to be a power conflict, specifically between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Let me show you that. It begins in verse 1 as Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. Look at verse 1 again. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar built a giant statue. Commentaries are all over the map as to what the statue was. Was it a person? Was it him? Was it some kind of animal, some kind of false god? We're not exactly sure, all right? What we do know, though, was it was massive, 90 feet high by 9 feet wide, all right? We also know it was made of pure gold from top to bottom. Why is that significant? Why does Nebuchadnezzar go to the uh, effort to build such a statue? What's he doing? What does it represent? Uh, Most art represents something. If you look at your kids' arts at times, it shows you something about their inner makeup, which maybe makes you scared, all right? But nonetheless, uh, this art, this statue resembles something about Nebuchadnezzar. To understand what it's saying about Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know the context of Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and no one in the land can interpret the dream, all right? He goes through all of his magicians, all of his conjurers, all of his sorcerers. No one can interpret it except for Daniel. Daniel finally shows up and provides uh, Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation of the dream. Notice with me, if you will, flipping back to chapter 2, verse 36. Notice the dream as it's interpreted. Daniel 2, 36. Notice what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. This was the dream, and now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Uh, the vision that Daniel, uh, or the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, was of a, of a statue of a person in which you had a series of different layers. At the top was gold, then you had silver, then you had bronze, then you had clay or iron, and then clay. And so, notice as he describes those layers. Notice what the layers represent. Verse 39, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. And then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. What is the point of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar gets in Daniel 2? Daniel interprets it saying that what this statue is is that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And that underneath each layer that comes underneath the head is a change of material. And each material as it changes represents a different kingdom that's going to come after Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Daniel 2 is telling Nebuchadnezzar that a day is going to come when your kingdom is going to end. And like any authority who feels threatened, he's going to react to that. In Daniel 3, in his construction of a giant golden, all-gold statue, which is in direct contrast to the vision he got in Daniel 2, is an affront to the vision that he got. When Daniel says there's a kingdom coming after you, Nebuchadnezzar builds a gold statue to say, oh no, there's not. (laughs) Basically what Daniel 3 verse 1 is, is Nebuchadnezzar going toe to toe with God and saying, I am the highest king of the land. My kingdom is going to last forever. There's not another one coming. Daniel 3 verse 1, as Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, is all about a power conflict that's going on. And frankly, that move is the move of an irrational and imposing man that shows he's absolutely insecure. 
A king whose kingdom is threatened, whose power is threatened, feels incredibly insecure. And so he makes a move here that shows his insecurity. He doesn't want to see his kingdom go. He doesn't want to see his kingdom come toppling. And so he builds a statue to say it's going to last forever. And the first principle I want to give you as you think about this topic of how do you navigate imposing and irrational authorities in your life is this. First principle is this. Imposing and irrational authorities are often insecure. The more imposing, the more irrational, sometimes the more insecure. Nebuchadnezzar is a profoundly insecure man who's responding out of his insecurity. And the more imposing he gets, the more insecure he is. As you think about your own life, as you think about the authorities that inflict you at times that you have to deal with, sometimes the more imposing they are, actually, if you look a little bit deeper past the surface, you find they're actually profoundly insecure. Their actions sure don't represent it, but if you look a little bit further, they can be, and you can see it. It's been uh, famously known as the Napoleon Complex. Uh, Whether Napoleon Bonaparte was actually short or not, the argument was he was incredibly vicious and incredibly aggressive to make up for his short height. I had a friend in high school, uh, his little name was Chip Bell, all right? We called him Tinkerbell, <laughs> all right? Uh, it was a, about 100 pounds on a good day soaking wet, all right? Uh, he might have had a little insecurity about that, and so you would see incredible aggression from him. He was always the attacker. He was always trying to establish his dominance over the rest of us, but we all knew he was just a little bit worked up about the fact that he was so skinny, all right? Sometimes the most imposing authorities are actually the most insecure. And what I want to do, even as we begin this morning, is as you think about those authorities in your life that are imposing, that are intimidating, maybe even irrational, I want you to take a moment, even as we begin, I want you to move beyond the surface of their actions that frustrate you, that you have to deal with. And I want you to look beyond the surface and ask, maybe are they profoundly insecure? And if they are, then does that begin to change your perspective of them and your response to them? I hope it does. I think King Nebuchadnezzar is a profoundly insecure man, which is why the very next thing that he does is he's going to demand universal loyalty here. All right, Verses 2 and 7, uh, I kept reading them over and over again. Uh, it's interesting, over and over again, I keep saying the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up over and over again, making the point he's made a move here, a move also that he assembles everyone around and he demands their loyalty and they bow down and they respond and worship to the statue. Profoundly imposing and insecure people are constantly putting out tests of loyalty. Every day is whether you are in line or not. They're constantly throwing their weight and their power around, which is why you see their insecurity at times. Nebuchadnezzar was that kind of man. And he's going to assemble the nation. It's really interesting. You look at verse 4. Notice what the text says in verse 4. Then the herald of Eli proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Wow. Verse 4 sounds a lot like to me like Revelation chapter 5. When men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are assembled around the throne. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's on par with God, and therefore he's making a move that God will make later on when he assembles all of the nations. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. When you think you're on par with God, you act like God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's going to demand loyalty. And what we're going to see here in verse 7 is that everyone will respond and everyone will bow down. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and they worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
see massive response amongst the nation. Everyone gets down and bows down. Except for three men. Except for three men. In every generation, there are those that will eventually stand up, even though the entire culture is moving in one way. There are going to be a few who will actually stand up. Isn't that a little bit of what we just celebrated with July 4th, right? There was a generation that arose that said, enough. And they revolted and they pushed back against authority. Uh, every movie always, to me, seems like it starts with the same movie trailer voice, right? And the same lead-in lines, you know, in a world there stands one man. It doesn't matter if it's like a fashion thing or a military thing, right? It's just like the whole world's moving this way and then there's this one woman with great fashion. I don't know, whatever. Or a military deal, right? But it's always that kind of thing, all right? Well, you're going to see these three men step up and stand out and go against the grain, all right? And the result is they're going to pay dearly for that. They're going to pay dearly for that. It's interesting to me, as you look at this, I'm going to give you guys this basic idea, that second principle for the morning, that nonconformity, the willingness to push back, I put it in small print because you get this already, but it prevents compromise. But here's the issue. It's going to cost greatly. These three Jews are going to push back. They're going to be nonconformists. They're not going to do what everyone else is doing. It's going to prevent their compromise, which we all get, but it's going to cost them greatly, all right? They're going to pay in two different angles. They're going to pay from some who come at them horizontally, and they're going to pay from someone who comes at them vertically. First, the horizontal. Notice what happens. Their peers are going to come right at them and inflict punishment. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded, and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. Let us butter you up, unlike these Jews. All right? Verse 10. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, a bagpipe, and all kinds of music, which I may just keep saying from all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And for a nation that saw their success being contingent upon the gods that they bowed down to, to not bow down to those gods was an act of treason. And so these peers come at these Jews and they lay claim, they make accusation. Why? These three Jews were political officials in the nation. These Chaldeans are laying accusation against these guys because they want these guys removed from their political office. Know that what's going on in Daniel 3 is less about religion, at least initially, and it's more about just a pure power play here. These Chaldeans are coming at them, and I love the text. I love the Hebrew in verse 8. It says, For this reason at that time certain uh, Chaldeans came forward, and literally the Hebrew says, ate them to pieces. That these peers come and they attack these Jews because they want their political position. It's not just that the Jews are one in the political position, but that political position is going to impact not just these Chaldeans, but it's going to impact Nebuchadnezzar as well. When Nebuchadnezzar heals, hears that his own political officials are not bowing down, he's going to treat them differently because of their position. Notice what he does. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Why does Nebuchadnezzar bring them in for a second hearing? Does everyone get a second hearing, or do some people get marched right off to the furnace? I suspect not everyone gets a second hearing. Why do they get a second hearing? Well, it's because they're political officials, right? The success of the nation up to this point has been conditioned on the fact that Daniel and these three guys are exceedingly good at what they do. The nation has benefited from their blessing and from their excelling and training, and they've been ruled by these men, and they've been blessed. So Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second hearing, hoping that they will change their mind because he needs them. Which kind of sets up the third principle I want to give you this morning. We're going to talk a lot about the fact that these guys are going to stand up and they're not going to bow down. But before we get there, I want you to see this. That conformity without compromise honors God. That conformity without compromise honors God. There are times that irrational and imposing authorities will ask you to betray your morality and to betray your faith. And those are incredibly hard moments. But there are also times where those imposing and irrational authorities are not asking you to do anything that's immoral. So how do you navigate under them? One of the things that you do is you excel as greatly as you can. I want you guys to see Daniel 1, verses 19 and 20. Notice what the text tells us about these guys. As they're deported and brought into Babylon after Israel falls, uh, these men come under the training of the Babylonians. And do they resist the training? Do they go different? Or how do they respond? Notice chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, conjurers who were in all his realm. These guys step into school and they knock it out of the ballpark. These guys come under Chaldean training in literature and the arts and in school and they excel, all right? As you guys come underneath authorities that are frankly sometimes irrational, imposing, and maybe incompetent, if they're not moving you toward things that are immoral, excel and do all that you can to make them look good, all right? That's exactly what these men did. And because of it, they'll come to a place, a position in which they're going to be a blessing to the entire nation, not just to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to those that are underneath his rule. But because of the difference of faith, they did not hose it. They excelled all that they could to make Nebuchadnezzar look all, as great as he could be. But the moment that Nebuchadnezzar pushed them to compromise their morality or their faith, then it was different and they stand up. But where there's not an issue of compromise, they excelled and they did all they could to serve and be the best servants possible underneath Nebuchadnezzar. I want you guys to catch that before we move on and see them have their act of civil disobedience. That up until Daniel 3, Daniel 1 and Daniel 2, these guys are the best servants you could possibly have. They make Nebuchadnezzar look outstanding. I think for some of us who come underneath authorities, whether it's in our home or whether it's in a workplace or whether it's at school or whether it's sometimes even in a church setting, in the past, maybe even in the present, if you find yourself underneath authorities who you go, man, they are just so intimidating. Maybe they're insecure. Sometimes it's just flat, flat, seem irrational. Maybe they're even incompetent. What do we do? Conformity without compromise honors God. Submit well to them. 
Uh, you're going to see civil disobedience here in a minute. You're going to see these guys respond. But I want you guys to see really where this goes next. I want you guys to see the way that, uh, oh, not there yet. A uh, little tease, all right? Uh, I want you guys to see uh, where our passage goes with the question that gets submitted here at the very end of verse 15, all right? Nebuchadnezzar goes off the handle. He gives them an opportunity. Uh, and notice how he ends verse 15. Notice what he says. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? That question is the presenting issue for Nebuchadnezzar. That's why we get into this whole issue with the statue. That question is what made him build a statue. That question is what reveals the power conflict that's going on as Nebuchadnezzar has gone toe-to-toe with God to say, let's do this, let's go. And so as he looks at these circumstances, as he looks at these men, he says to these men, there's no God who can save you from my hand. I am the highest authority in the land. I am the highest power in the land. No one checks my prerogative. No one checks me. He's on a power trip. And you've seen authorities like this before that you've had to come underneath. And so to that question, you're going to see them respond. But I'll give you guys a way that I think social media has responded to this question this week. Some of you guys know this. Some of you guys have seen the whole story of Tim Howard, U.S. goalie, uh, who Tuesday night, even though the U.S. lost, uh, he had 16 saves, blocks uh, of, of shots on goal, uh, record craziness, uh, and social media has gone insane, all right? Some have even begun to say that Tim Howard, in a sense, could be the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America. Even Obama made that joke this week, all right? Even Obama has jumped on the social media train, all right? But in terms of things that Tim Howard could save, some have said this, that Tim Howard could have saved the dinosaurs, all right? Uh, in terms of a god, what could he have done? Some have said that Tim Howard could have changed the whole story of Lion King, all right? And lastly, that Tim Howard could have saved the Titanic, all right? So, in terms of things that Tim Howard could have saved, but Tim Howard could not have saved these men from the furnace. Uh, notice what the men are going to say. I just did that. You're right. Here we go. Verse 16. <laughs> notice their answer, all right? It's more of a Sunday school answer. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. This is outside of your jurisdiction, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure that makes him really nicely happy. Verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love their answer. (laughs) What God is there that can save us? Well, we have a God who can save us. He has the ability to save us. Whether he will save us, we do not know. But whether he saves us or whether he does not save us, we will not worship you and we will not bow down. They stand up. And I think what they show to Nebuchadnezzar is that their God trumps all human authorities. (laughs) That their God trumps all human authorities. That behind every human authority, there is a divine one who stands supreme over all human authorities in the land. Some of my favorite passages about divine and human authority as they come together. I'll take you guys to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when Paul says this about human and divine authority. He says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Every authority in your life has been positioned and installed by God himself. That stings when you look at an authority that seems irrational, imposing, insecure, and sometimes incompetent. To know that God has put them there, even though sometimes you think you could do better, that changes your whole perspective. Realizing that every human authority, even the ones that are difficult for us, even the ones that make us suffer, 
ones that stress us and try us, even those authorities God has established. But it's not just that he installs every authority, but he also controls every authority. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, and one of my favorite passages says this, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. You're going to see that come true here in just a few verses with Nebuchadnezzar. But God not just installs kings, but he can control them and move them however he sees fit. Daniel actually says this in chapter 2, verses uh, 20 to 21. Flip back real quick. I want you guys to see the way Daniel puts it. Notice what he says in the midst of this vision. Daniel 2, verses 20 and 21, he says, Daniel says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. God is the installer of every human authority, and the ones he installs are the ones he can remove just as swiftly as well. But he's absolutely in control which is a bit trying when you look at your circumstances and you you begin to wonder, God, what's going on? Why is this authority that you've put in my own family that continually troubles me and continually makes life difficult? Why have you placed me underneath this authority in a workplace setting that frankly uh, is moving our business to ruin, maybe is asking me to compromise my faith or or my morality? Or maybe it's one that a campus organization, or maybe it's been in a church situation in the past, and you wonder, God, why? It's interesting to me as we look at this, what we're going to see uh, in the next part, a movement of the story is a climatic intervention. And what we're going to see is that we're going to see God enter the picture. That God is not absent in those situations. That God not just installs kings, he controls kings. And even in the midst of authorities that are irrational and problematic, God is still present. He's going to be present for these three men. Notice the text. Notice how far Nebuchadnezzar goes off the handle. All right. Back to chapter 3. Notice what happens in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. All right. Again, a move of an irrational man. If you want to punish people by fire, don't turn up the heat. Cool it down, right? Make death slower and more painful. A quick fire, and they're done, and they're gone, and they're out quickly, right? Move of an irrational man. But notice how his irrationality makes him pay, even of his greatest servants. Notice verse 22. For this reason, the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot. And the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The very, some of his best servants are carrying these three guys up to the furnace, and the very flame itself that he's turned up is going to consume them, and they're dead on the spot. His irrationality comes at a cost to himself as well. He's an incompetent ruler, right? It's going to cost him greatly. And for, uh, uh, for these three men, as they're going to be thrown into the f- furnace, verse 23, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. If this were an, uh, a two-part episode, you'd have a to-be-continued right here, and it'd leave you hanging, right? Wondering what's going to happen next. They've fallen into the furnace. Where is God? What's happened here? You're going to see an incredible climatic intervention here. And notice what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to have an incredible moment of surprise. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He's absolutely surprised. Why is he surprised? What's actually surprising him? It's not just that these three men are now not bound. It's not just that they're not consumed yet, all right? Well, what's actually surprising him is that there's a realization for him that his authority has limits. What did he make happen? 
bind them, throw them in. What's happened? They're now unbound, and they're walking around without any harm whatsoever. There's a power that's stronger than his own, which is why he's so surprised. His prerogative has been checked, and his power has been usurped, and there's something that's stronger than him because he gets a recognition of a divine being. Notice the very end of verse 25. Look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. A fourth being intervenes here and climatically intervenes and steps into this situation in this picture. Why is that so significant? All, some, all summer long, we've been looking at a series of theophany passages and stories in which an angel of the Lord or pre-incarnate Christ shows up in the midst of a narrative story, and it changes everything, right? It changes everything. We're going to see here in a minute that's going to change everything for Nebuchadnezzar, but before we get there, what I want you to see is from the perspective of the three men, why is this so significant? Why is the appearance and the arrival of this fourth person who is like a son of the gods, why is that so significant? I think what it tells to those three men and what it tells to you and I is that God is not at all absent from our suffering, but he's present in our suffering. One of the principles I want to give you guys this morning as you look at your own struggle with authorities in your life, as you come underneath their affliction, as they're they're irrational, as they're imposing, sometimes asking you to do things that are not uh, even moral, as you come underneath that, one of the things I want to remind you this morning is this. God remains present in your suffering. A fourth person like the Son of the God shows up in the very moment of their judgment. (laughs) That he's not lost sight. He's not impervious to what's going on. He's very aware. He very much sees. He very much has entered in. God remains present in the midst of whatever sufferings you're experiencing under any authorities that you're encountering. One of my favorite quotes comes from Professor DTS who said this about our own personal experience of suffering. He said that in our suffering, God may be found precisely where he was on Good Friday identifying with us in our suffering, acting to resolve that suffering in ways we may not see or imagine, and yet sovereign in the heavens, accomplishing his eternal though mysterious purposes. I love that. That what you get here in Daniel 3 is a little glimpse of what's going to be coming at the cross of Jesus Christ. That in the midst, in the statement of judgment, there comes God in the flesh who intervenes. And in that moment, we see that God does see suffering. In the midst of his engagement and his involvement with suffering, he's going to do something that you cannot think or imagine. We call the cross Good Friday, but on that Friday, there was nothing good about it for those that were looking on. Because they did not realize what was going to be coming just three days later. That Christ would resurrect, that he would provide hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all those who were looking on, and it would forever change that experience that they had of suffering on that Good Friday. But on that Friday, they couldn't see what was happening three days later. For these men who would step into the furnace, they had no idea. They knew God could deliver them. They had no idea what God would do. Even more so, they weren't looking even further down the road. I have a hunch they were thinking just about the furnace. But what's going to be amazing about this moment is not just that God will intervene, but he's going to bring about a dramatic resolution. That what God's going to do specifically here in our story through Nebuchadnezzar is going to flip the script completely upside down. You're going to have a dramatic resolution, a dramatic reversal occurring first for the three Jews, all right? Notice uh, verse uh, uh, 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. These three Jews go from a... 
uh, being banished to execution to being invited back out to life. It's an amazing reversal. And the reversal that's even more amazing is not just for these Jews, but it's going to be for Nebuchadnezzar himself. You're going to see Nebuchadnezzar go from ignorance to reverence. Remember, it was Nebuchadnezzar who said to these three Jews, what God can deliver you from my hands? Assumption, there is no God. I am the highest in the land. My authority is unchecked. My prerogative cannot be dismissed. And in this moment, instantly, Nebuchadnezzar is going to realize he's dead wrong. And he's going to instantly respond. Not three days later, but instantaneously he's going to respond. And I want you to see how greatly he responds. He invites these men out of the furnace and he refers to them as servants of the Most High God. That the God that they are serving is the one who is most high, who is over all other authorities. He is the Most High. That his power is greater than his own. What a turnaround for Nebuchadnezzar. But he goes even further than just that. It's not just going to be a personal turnaround. He's going to lead a national turnaround. Notice what he does, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and he yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. And now notice what he does, verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Wow. Instantaneous change, complete flipping of the script. Nebuchadnezzar, who dismissed the vision in chapter 2 and said, my kingdom will last forever. Here in Daniel 3, he's going to see an intervention of a divine being and he's going to completely change his tune. Recognizing that these three men serve a God who is most high and that their God is the one who rules over all the earth. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar then leads his nation not to bow down to his statue, but leads his nation to worship their God. What an incredible flipping of the script. I promise you these three Jews could not have foreseen that kind of possible change. They knew their God could deliver them. But did they really think God could do this? That he could move the heart of a king and the heart of an irrational, imposing, and incompetent authority over above them? Could he move that kind of a heart? I wonder if they did. The last idea I want to give you here this morning is this, that God uses nonconformity to change authorities. That God will use your nonconformity to possibly change your authority. We began this morning saying that sometimes the most imposing authorities are actually the most insecure. I want to challenge you to begin to think through that authority that's in your life. I want to challenge you to think through, why might they be this way? Maybe they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ whatsoever. <laughs> maybe they do, but maybe they're profoundly insecure. And they're constantly looking for approval. They're constantly looking for value in their life, which is why you are experiencing what you are experiencing. Whether it's within your family, whether it's within a business setting, whether it's been in a church setting, past or present, or whether it's been in an organization in the community in some form or fashion. Every single one of us has come underneath some kind of authority that we go, this is really difficult. Maybe it's not immoral, but just trying to submit underneath this authority is really, really challenging, and frankly, it's suffering at times. To bear up underneath that pressure well. 
One of the things I want to encourage you with as we wrap up this morning is that sometimes your willingness to submit well to them or resist them if it's an issue that's really significant and moral of faith actually can be the very means that God uses to bring about a change in them. That make sense? That sometimes your willingness to submit to them and sometimes your willingness to resist and push back on them can become the very thing that God uses and that they recognize that leads about a change in their very life. Nebuchadnezzar is going to have an incredible movement here, an incredible reversal. Yes, it's because of how God intervenes, but God intervenes on the willingness of these men to submit their lives forward, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes it. One of my favorite stories, uh, works that's been written is a book called Unbroken. Some of you guys have read that book. Incredible story. Uh, this week, Louis Zapparini, the, the main character that's in it, actually passed away, so a lot of it's kind of come back up to notoriety. Uh, but he was an Olympic medal uh, runner, uh, had incredible success there, would eventually go in to fight World War II. Uh, on a plane uh, mission, he would uh, crash on the open ocean of the Pacific. He'd go down, and he would be adrift for 47 days. I remember reading the book. <laughs> After 47 days, I'm halfway through the book going, what else could happen, all right? Well, he would eventually come to an island where he would be tortured by the Japanese for a very, very long time. He'd come back home to the States eventually when World War II would come to an end and he would have some serious demons to deal with. Uh, eventually he would come to a Billy Graham crusade. He'd come to Christ. His life would begin to slowly but surely transform and change. And at one point, eventually, he would head to Japan as a missionary. And he would head into a room, into a prison, in which the very men that had tortured him and abused him were actually there. The very authorities that were intimidating and irrational and incompetent and frankly immoral. The ones that he had suffered under, right? And as he walks into that room, the, the book ends kind of toward one of these stories and it says this about his response to them. And I think the quote is phenomenal. It says this, that Louis was seized by childlike giddy exuberance as he entered the room to see these prison guards. And before he realized what he was doing, he was bounding down the aisle. And in bewilderment, the men who had abused him watched him come to them, his hands extended, and a radiant smile on his face. How in the world did a guy who experienced those kinds of authorities come to a place where he was able to respond in that kind of way? Clearly, he had to come to a place where he was willing to forgive those authorities, right? And let go their transgressions. I started with you guys this morning challenging you to think through those authorities and wondering if there's some insecurity in our life so that you would have some compassion on them. And I want to end this morning challenging you not just to have compassion on them, but that your compassion would then move to forgiveness. Many of these authorities that are in your life that you think of are still in your life. You're still dealing with them. And to deal with them well and for God to accomplish his purposes for you and for them, you're going to have to forgive them. Otherwise, you're going to continue to be sidelined and unable to interact with them and unable to be a vehicle that God may want to use in their life to bring about a dramatic restoration and transformation in them. So my challenge and my question to you this morning is, are you willing to go to that place? Are you willing to forgive them so that you can move to actually pray for them? praying that God would accomplish something in them that would bring about a transformation, maybe from ignorance to reverence of God, maybe from insecurity to identity and security in Christ, maybe from a crazy amount of anger to an ability to lead in peace and with kindness and with gentleness. 
That kind of transformation occurs as you forgive and as you continue to submit underneath them in ways that God can use to bring about a transformation in their life and in our life. That's my hope and that's my prayer for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we all can recognize that there are authorities in our life that frankly are incredibly difficult for us. For some of us, we still show and bear the scars of their leadership and influence upon us. Maybe those are psychological wounds of a parent. Maybe those are the loss of a business and a job. Uh, maybe that's just the loss of a reputation in a community and a city. Father, Lord, you, you know those individuals that are in our life, Lord, and I pray and I ask that you would extend and enable us to find for them compassion, to begin to interact with them in a profoundly different way, recognizing and realizing that you are the ultimate authority in the land, that you are directly behind them. And then until you're ready to remove them, such is your will for us to submit underneath them the best that we can. And I pray that you would give us strength to submit well, to honor well, and in areas where we're asked to compromise, to stand up and say no. Willing to pay the cost at times for that nonconformity. Lord, I thank you that your own son, Jesus Christ, would stand in our place in the midst of judgment and we would recognize and we would remember that in the midst of our suffering, you are not unacquainted with suffering. That not only do you sympathize, but that you can identify and that in the midst of our suffering, you are actually not just identifying, but you are working in ways that we can't even imagine or see right now. Just as no one would imagine after the cross, the resurrection of what would unfold, so often for us, we're on the front side of Good Friday in the midst of our experience with these authorities. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to respond in such a way, trusting in hope that you are working even when we cannot see it. Trusting that you have not abandoned us, that you're not silent, that you don't see what's going on. But I pray that you would strengthen us to bear underneath it well when we need to. And the hope that you can work in and through the situation to bring about a change in these very authorities themselves. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Great seeing you guys this morning. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you guys next week.